called it the prodigal son, but the third person in the story was the older brother that we introduced last week. So tonight we pick up the story in verse 28. I like a good story. I've read a lot of books that are stories, like one of, one of the old classics was Ivanhoe. I devoured that when I was in seventh grade. I've read it a number of times by Sir Walter Scott. And he's not an easy man to write, but I enjoyed reading that, all right? The difference between reading Sir Walter Scott and reading the Word of God is that the Word of God is inspired of God. Walter Scott might bless your heart by the time you come to the end, which you understand the plot and the the resolve that takes place in the story. But nothing can rejoice the heart more than to see the truth of God resolved in our own personal hearts. And the Lord is taking time with us as we go through this chapter, looking at these different individuals, looking at the son who left home, looking at the father who was there to receive his son when he came home, and now tonight again, looking at this older brother. As we come to this older brother, it's kind of like what Paul does in the book of Romans, where he gives you the anatomy of a dead man, the anatomy of a lo- the the uh, the autopsy of a man who's dead in trespasses and sin. But I will look at this passage and say, here we have the autopsy of a person who is a legalist. Now you got to be careful about using the word legalist because legalist, technically and biblically is somebody who believes that you are saved by some other way than just grace alone. Legalists believe there's some other way to obtain eternal life. Legalists believe there's some other way to ingratiate yourself to God. I can't find that in the Bible. I find that man cannot ingratiate himself to God. God loved us while we were yet sinners. That Christ died for us. I did not deserve, deserve his love, but he gave it nonetheless. And I'm the recipient of his grace, and I rejoice in that. But when I look at this man called the, the, the older son, I'm impressed that this older son uh, couldn't even enjoy or be part of that event that his father was throwing for his brother back at the house. The brother had shamed himself, The father continued to shame himself, as we've seen in our study. And he's gotten the whole community involved in what this boy would regard as a shameful celebration. And quite frankly, he says, I'm not going to go in. I'm not going to be a part of this. You look at verse 28. The Bible says he became angry. He was angry because he was not going to go in. And of course he wasn't going to go in. Of course. You see, that addresses the original, uh, the original issue, isn't it? Back at the beginning of the book, the, G- the people, the Pharisees said, Look, Jesus, you receive sinners and you eat with sinners. You're willing to have a banquet for sinners. How can you do that? Quite frankly, the, the people who are legalists don't understand God's joy. And because they don't understand God's joy, they can't enjoy Christ's joy in receiving sinners. Whether they're what we call prodigals or prolificates 
or the immoral or the outcast. For somebody who's a legalist, all of this activity of grace is absolutely outrageous. How in the world can this father do this to this son without even consulting the older son about getting it ready? But as we saw last week, this older son had no love for his brother. So he didn't rejoice when his brother came back any more than he cared when his brother left. This older brother had no love for his father. He didn't rejoice with his father any more than he defended his father at the beginning when the father was hearing the request from the younger son for his portion of the inheritance. That boy didn't even speak up and defend his father's honor. You mark it down in your Bible. This older son is not a Christian. He's not a born-again believer. He's a typical religious hypocrite standing on the outside condemning the gracious work of salvation. And he's angry. That's the only emotion he feels. And you know what? The Pharisees and the scribes at this point are probably saying, yeah, he's got a right to be angry. You know, they would agree with the older son. Why? Because they're just like him. You ought to be upset. You ought to be upset that a mother was shamed and a father was shamed and the son had destroyed his life. Yeah, you don't need to go in and enjoy the party. Stand outside and be mad. You know, and this he would expect that those Pharisees and scribes would feel the same way. Legalists do not believe in grace. If you think you're not a legalist, you examine your own heart. When God reaches out and saves somebody by grace, and you get indignant about it, that puts the finger on your heart and said, look, you're acting like a, a legalist. Legalists don't understand unmerited favor of God. They don't understand free forgiveness. They don't understand the removal of punishment. They don't understand somebody else bearing their shame, taking their scorn. They don't get it. I'm not going to go into this party. I mean, this is a public display of this boy's private hatred for his dad and his brother. Now, admittedly, he'd probably done a better job of hiding his hatred than in the past. I mean, he probably had the community believing that he was a very respectful of his father and honored his father and maybe even cared for his father. I mean, after all, he did stick around the house, didn't he? That would give the impression that, no, he must, there must be some substance to him. I mean, this boy did what his father wanted him to do. Everybody must have thought, this, this kid must respect his dad. But at this point, the real attitude begins to show. He can't get in on the joy. You know, there are people, even in our own church, probably just don't get in on the joy. And that's probably because somewhere back in, in their inner being, they can't get on on joy because they have other expectations rather than expectations of grace. That's the way it is in the world today. The world is full of religious hypocrisy. People who look like they hang around the, the house of God, but they don't know the heart of God. They're trying to earn their way to heaven, which is the greatest deception that Satan has ever invented, and it's characteristic of every false religion on the place of this earth. 
When salvation comes to people who are spiritually bankrupt and destitute and impoverished, and they fall on their faces before God, begging God to forgive them, and they repent of their sins, and they receive love, and all that comes with it, the legalists simply don't like it. How can you do that? would be the attitude of the legalist toward this dad. How can the world can you do that? How can you just do that when really he didn't deserve it? Well, let me ask you, how in the world could God do what he did when we didn't deserve it? Ever ask yourself that? Why, why did God do it when we didn't deserve it? The only answer you have is grace. That's the only answer. The older son had the perfect opportunity if he wanted to, to honor his dad. But the truth is, he's just as much a, a rebel as his brother was a rebel. He's not an outward rebel. He's an inward one. And inward rebels are the worst. He's what we call a secret sinner. A sinner who hides his sin with subterfuge. He probably felt the same lust that his brother felt. Because, I mean, because he's a sinner. But he hides them because legalism never. Legalism never changes your heart. You know why? Because no work of the flesh can change your heart. He felt the same lust. He didn't live home, but maybe he had the longings to feel home, long, gone. I mean, he had the same desires of his brother. But he covers them up. He just never gets to the place where he just outwardly fulfills them. And he probably does that because he has a stronger desire for prestige and honor in order to gain his father's estate. So really, when you look at it, it's kind of like he's driven by pride. But the base things are still there. And now all of a sudden, we know that he hates his father and he hates his brother. Now, saved people, you're sitting here tonight, a saved individual. All of you have problems with sin. The difference between you and a legalist is how to take care of it. If you're a legalist, you try to do it on your own. If you're a true again, born again child of God, you can't handle it. You can't take the truth. And so you take it to God and you say, God, this is my need. Hear my cry. See, this, this older brother's indifferent to the recovery of his brother. He's indifferent to the joy that his father is sensing in the younger son coming home. He can't rejoice with either one. And that's exactly the way the Pharisees were. And when you think about a hypocrite, you have to think a little more deeply than on the surface. Hypocrites stay near the house. They hang around. They hang around church more than anything else, probably because they're, they're, they're outwardly religious and they're outwardly moral. But they don't have a relationship with God. They really don't have a desire to honor him. They got no interest in the honor of heaven or heaven's joy. 
It's all about, a legalist is all about, mark it down, self-promotion. The self-promotion of me, myself, and I. Me. How does it affect me? I. Self-promotion. And most of all, thinking by some way they can earn their way into the goodwill of people, even into the goodwill of God. But the truth is, they're alienated from God. To use a biblical word, Paul says, alienated from God by their wicked works. They're no part of what God does. He's like the son in the field, not even consulted about the things that move the heart of God. Religious hypocrites do what they're expected to do on the outside, and they're good at doing it. They follow the external religious program and the moral patterns, but inside they're just full of secret sin. Jesus said about the scribes and the Pharisees and hypocrites, he said, you're whited sepulchers. On the outside you appear nice, but inside you're full of dead men's bones, like rotten corpses under the surface. On the surface, you look good, but inside you're bitter and you've got hatred and you're jealous and you're angry and you're full of lust. I said last week in the evening service that the older son is likely in real life envying the prodigal. Think of what he got to enjoy as he wasted his substance with riotous living. I've never had that opportunity, but I think I'd like to do it. That's probably what the older son felt. The prodigal gets to do what he never could do, but desires to secretly do it. He would hate seeing his brother live it up in a sin that he openly condemns. But that's like all hypocrites. Hypocrites tend to be sad all the time. Melancholy is another word for it, or a sense of emptiness. A sense of unfulfilledness. Because hiding in their hearts are a burden of superficial, hidden religion. This boy feels like he earned his father's praise. He feels like he earned his father's position. He feels like he earned his father's reward. He earns his honor by Painful, loveless obedience. Performing duties while he is really hiding his secret sin. Well, to tell the truth, the hypocrite is lost. And I would say he's more profoundly lost because he spent his whole life convincing everybody he's all right. And that's a long ways from there to admitting that you're really wretched. Whereas if you're like the prodigal. And you've made it clear that you're wretched. It's just a short step to admitting it and coming home. A self-righteous hypocrite hates the idea of salvation by grace. And they hate the idea of, of full forgiveness for a repentant sinner. And they won't bother to come to the party. They'll not celebrate. Hypocrites are more deadly to any religious environment because they set a tone for the kind of conduct that kills spirituality and eternity for people. Because they say, I don't need to repent. After all, I'm good. It's like the 99 back in verse 7. 
so-called righteous people who don't need any repentance. As long as you don't need to repent like the prodigal, you can't be saved. You can't enter the kingdom of God. Jesus Christ came to save sinners. Self-confessed repenting sinners. Repentance is the key to everything. This, this older son had no interest in that. Which leads me to believe he didn't have any knowledge of God. Surely no love for him, no love for sinners. Really, there are two kinds of sinners in the world. The religious ones and the irreligious ones. You got the moral sinner and you got the immoral. You got those that hang around the things of God, trying to keep the law of God. And then those that run as far as they can, as fast as they can, and live as wild as they can. An immoral, wild living. But you know what? The Father's there for both of them. And the Father's there for you tonight, too. If you've ever found up rising in your heart hatred for somebody who expressing repentance toward God and love for him and love for lost souls, God's got a place for you, too. See, whatever kind of sinner you are, Jesus Christ came into the world in order to live and die and provide salvation for both kinds of sinners and any mixture in between. Well, the story's not over. There's one final scene. The father goes out to confront the son. Now watch this. This is an amazing thing. I think you don't want to miss it. It's amazing. Look at verse 28. Therefore came his father out and entreated him. Now right there, again, you see something here that's so precious in Scripture. God is the initiator. God is the instigator. Here we see God in Christ, the seeker, just in the, as in the case of the younger son. The father came down about his house and ran to the younger son and embraced him and brought him home, bearing all the shame, the embarrassment of violating the public conventional behavior. And he did it in order to embrace the sinner. And here, at this part of the chapter, the father leaves the festival that's going on. And he goes out and does what you would never expect God to do. What does he do, people? Listen, he begs a sinner. He begs a hypocrite. He's the one who came to seek and to save that which was lost. And when the information came about the older son and it reaches the father... The word comes to him that his son is on the outside and he's not going to come in. He knows that his son is a rebel. And now we're going to find out how God feels about irreligious hypocrites. The Pharisees would probably expect that this father would be absolutely insulted by that behavior. It's an utter disregard for the father's honor, the honor's, the father's joy, the father's care and love of the brother who came home. It shows this boy, it shows the father as having no love for either of them. See, in the traditional Middle Eastern response would be to take the son out and give him a public beating. I mean, you're going to dishonor me by doing what you're doing? You'd be taken out and whipped somewhere. Just one breach, breach of perceived honor after another, after another, after another. The father could have taken that boy and had him beaten, locked in a room until he could be dealt with. I mean, he had been dis he's dishonoring his dad. 
But here the father comes and he begs him. You know what? God in Christ is condescending. Condescending. He shows up again in mercy. He shows up in compassion and love and humility and kindness. He leaves the party and he comes out into the night with everybody watching. And the buzz is sure going to go through the party now because they know what's going on. The father is leaving for some reason. This is selfless love on the part of the father toward this son. In just the same way that the father had previously welcomed the prodigal son home in the same way he's going out to beg the other son to come home. So he goes out in mercy to reach this hypocrite the same way he reached to the rebel. Now I want you to notice something. He said, the Bible says he went out and did what? He entreated him. Entreated him. That's the word from which we get paralakeo. It's a very common word. It means, it's a noun form from which we get the word paraclete. When we talk about the Holy Spirit, one who comes alongside. Entreating him is to come alongside and to speak to somebody. He's right there, right out alongside his son. And he pleads with him. He calls him to come into the house to join the celebration. And this son, with whom the scribes and the Pharisees are so identified should have, I mean, this should have brought them face to face with themselves as completely ignorant of the Father's love and grace and mercy in this situation. You see, they were in the house. They were around. They were religious ones. They were the dutiful ones. They were the moral ones. But they didn't know God. They didn't know the heart of God. You sit in a service and some people respond with joy. When somebody repents and other people are putting on their coats and say, well, hardly wait to get out of here, you know. We got things to do, places to go, instead of rejoicing. And have the interest in recovering lost sinners. They refuse to honor God for saving grace. In fact, when they see Jesus, they see Jesus as being satanic. But Jesus said in John's Gospel, chapter 5, verse 23, if they had honored the Father, they would honor me. But like this older son, they refused to go in. But here is a picture of wonderful, compassionate grace of God reaching out even to these hypocrites. And the response of the older son in verse 29 says this. Look at it very simply, and you're going to miss it. Look at it. It says, and he, what? Answering. Answering. And he answering said to his father, Oh, wait a minute. When the younger son came home, what did he purpose to say when he came home? He purposed to say, Father, right? Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight and no more worthy to be called thy son. What did he say? Father. But what does this older son do? He doesn't say father. It's in essence he said look. There's no title of respect. He just simply says 
You know, for so many years I've been serving you. And he uses the form of that word doulos, which is deluo, slave language. I've been, I've been your slave for so many years. That's what a legalist would say. I'm a slave. I mean, that's that no fun posture, no joy whatsoever. And it indicates that in the heart of this guy, he has seen this horrible gritting your teeth, grind your way through all these years and years of slugging out your slavery to this guy so that when he dies, you can get your share of the pie. Really, he's no different than the younger son. He wanted what he wanted. He just had a different way to get it. And he didn't have the courage of his younger brother. We would say he didn't have the cutspot. He didn't have the moxie. He decided the safe ground was just to hang around and wait until there's a vacancy by the father and then I can take over. You see, it's nothing to him but slavery. Everybody will be a slave to something. You're either a slave to sin or you're a slave to God. For the older brother, it's nothing but slavery to him. And that slavery just caused him to be bitter and resentful and angry for so many years. And next week, I want you to take time with me to look at the descriptiveness of what he says. It's amazing. Jesus Christ came to save us by grace. And when we understand grace, we see the destructive power of legalism. Thank God that you're saved if you are tonight. Rejoice in that. And say, God, help me to move in grace toward those that I know. And say, God, would you use me as your vessel to show you, though I was far away from God, I came home and God received me and God will receive anybody who comes on the right terms. Father in heaven, we thank you for the blessed truth of your scripture tonight. It's something that we can gather around our hearts and truth that we can pillow our head on. Truth that will bring us sleep after a long day's work. Truth that will ruminate in our heart and cause us to wake and refresh to serve you and continue to serve you giving witness to how great our God is. Bless, we pray, your truth to our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen.